In May of 2005, there was a girl by the name of Natalie Holloway who made international news <clears throat> because she had graduated from her high school and then went on a trip with her friends to Aruba. She was from Arkansas, had her graduation, went to Aruba, and she was supposed to be on the plane on May 30th to head back home, and she wasn't on the plane. And so the parents tried to search for her. They got the authorities in Aruba involved, and it made, if you remember, or if you followed the news back then, she was all over the news as they were trying to locate their daughter. Eventually, time went on, and they started to close the case. They couldn't find the body. They haven't found the body to this day. But I think it was about oh, maybe eight years or, ago or so, there was like a 10-year special on television recounting details and, and, and interviewing different people. And they were actually interviewing Natalie's mom in that special, and her name's Beth, and they asked her, how do you go on in life when you when you lose your daughter? How do you keep going when you've lost pretty much everything? And Beth responded and said something like, well, when you have something in your life that you live for and you lose that, you have to find something else. And then you live for that thing. That gives you meaning and purpose. And if that goes away, then you find something else to keep you going. And even thinking about her response now, it burdens me. Because what she says there is essentially she's recognizing that this stuff in this world fail us and they go away. And yet, at the same time, she's going to continue to persist to try to find meaning, life, hope, identity in the stuff of this world that's going to fail her. She could turn to God, who is eternal, and because he's eternal, she could have eternal hope, eternal uh, identity and life and meaning. But she turns to just another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing. Now, I don't say that so we can just point the fingers at Beth and say, oh, now I can look down on you because you're so horrible and I'm so much better. I actually think that's the human condition. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, where he says that all humans have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, things that are created, more than the creator. We worship creation. And if you think that's too strong of a word, the word worship just means worthship. What you ascribe ultimate worth to is what you worship. So what gives you your meaning, your life, your identity is what you worship. And that's what, that's what Beth is communicating. I find this thing and I, that's what gives me meaning. That's what gives me purpose. And I think that we ought to ask ourselves a question too. What do we turn to for hope, for identity, for meaning, for purpose? Or we also ought to ask at times when some of those things are taken away, why am I so angry? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so whatever those emotions are? Because that reveals maybe that we're too attached 
to just what we can see and not to the God who we can't see. We tend, we want to believe in our sinfulness. We want to believe that the things of this world are going to give us meaning. Whereas only God is the one who can do that. Now, the reason why I say all of this is because I I think of what we're looking at in the book of Genesis this morning, in Genesis chapter 3. I see these words that we're going to be looking at as words that both comfort and confront the original readers of Genesis. And just let me ask you, who are the original readers? Who's the original audience of Genesis? What? Israel, Israelites, where are they? In, in the wilderness. So the Israelites in the wilderness, and they have left Egypt, Egypt with all of its false worship that had gods for everything that they could see in creation, right? Gods of frogs, water, sun, fertility. And in the wilderness, the Israelites are out there and and at times are tempted even to go back to Egypt and also to not worship God, but to defy him and just cling to things that they see. They tend to think that their way is the only way that's going to satisfy them and give them what they need, Um, but it never does. Israel is never satisfied when they go their own ways. And isn't that exactly what happens to Adam and Eve and their temptation and the fall into sin? The serpent, Satan, promises that they're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. He says, essentially, they're missing out. And then Adam and Eve sin, and then they become totally exposed and are overwhelmed in shame What they thought was going to bring a new identity and purpose and hope only brought shame and brokenness and death. And in the midst of God's confrontation to Adam and Eve, what I think should actually shock all of us is that it's it's not shocking that God would judge them. It's shocking that in the midst of these statements, God has words of mercy to them. I mean, if you've ever read the stories of the Israelites out in the wilderness, have you ever thought, God, just why did you not give up on them? Like, just get a new group, right? They are a mess. And you might even think that with Adam and Eve. Ah, why did he do that? Why didn't he just start all over? There was only two people. He could have just done away with them. But there's something beautiful that we see in the story, in the narrative of Adam and Eve that speaks to the Israelites in the wilderness and speaks to us today. And that's this. God loves to reveal his character, which is he loves to extend mercy. And that mercy would triumph over judgment. Now we enter into chapter 3 of Genesis 3. And we've already covered most of the statements of God's punishment But today we're coming to the conclusion of the punishment by focusing on Adam and God's words to Adam. And then we're going to continue to move to the end of chapter 3. But what we see in God stating his punishment to Adam, I think what we can tell in all of these punishments is, is that God is revealing and reminding them and us as readers that all of us are needy for God. You cannot live life and truly live on your own. You cannot really experience life and do things your way. 
You must have God. God is the meaning. God is the purpose. And so Adam and Eve, they thought they knew the right way. They thought that they were going to experience more life, and they got death. And then they get these punishments to remind them, you need God. We're weak and we're frail. And so even God's punishments is a continual reminder to all humanity. We need him. Now, with that backdrop, I want to give you the main idea of the sermon today, which is that the covenant-keeping God compels us to see our need for him by giving mercy through judgment to Adam, to Eve, and to humanity. What I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on God's judgment to Adam, then God's mercy to Adam and Eve, and then God's judgment and mercy to all of humanity. That's what we see as we break down the passage, and then that compels us to recognize our need for him in all things. Now, I'm only going to say this briefly, but I have this listed, the covenant-keeping God. And the reason why I have that statement there is because of the word Lord, whenever God is referred to now. Um, since chapter 2 of Genesis, whenever Moses refers to God, he refers to God as the Lord God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is referring to the covenant-keeping God. This is important even for the readers to recognize we're talking about a God who is always making promises. God, whatever God says, he cannot rescind what he says. His yes is always yes. His no is always no. He's always faithful. He always is. And, and this God, this God holds himself to his words to human beings. That's amazing. He has a commitment to his image bearers. So this is the covenant-keeping God. And he compels us to see our need for him by giving mercy through judgment to Adam, Eve, and humanity. So let's start with looking at God's judgment to Adam in verses 17 through 19. And we're going to read these verses again. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's God saying to Adam here? Now some people, some people actually interpret this this punishment, and they'll say that God is actually punishing Adam for two reasons here. One, he listened to his wife. Two, he ate from the tree. Okay? Um, and they will actually view that because they'll say there's two reasons for that. Then they'll say as application, so men, don't listen to your wives. Don't listen to them. That's why we have this punishment. If you ever... If a man ever interprets scripture that way to you, just watch out. Because that's not going to be a healthy relationship. That's a twisting of what the scriptures are saying. The Hebrew here, the word and, is actually connecting the two points to say it's one thing that's happening. It, it, it wasn't he listened and then point two, he ate. It is what was the purpose of the listening? It was to rebel against God. 
that Adam was standing passively by. We know he was passive there because the scriptures say that she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her, right? So he's standing there and he's not protecting his wife. He's not caring for his wife. He's listening to all of this deception. And then she hands it to him and he says, sure, I'll take. He should have strangled that serpent, killed the serpent, crushed the serpent, but he didn't. Instead, while she's being deceived, and he knows it, because the New Testament says that, Adam wasn't deceived. He just listens and says, sure, I'll rebel against God. That's what I'm going to do. That's why there's the consequence. That's why there's the punishment. He heeded traitorous words and embraced sin. So because Adam sinned, God now decrees the punishment. And it, it's similar in form to the previous punishments that God gives to the serpent and also to the woman. I just want you to see it here. The serpent will want to rule over the seed of the woman, but will be thwarted. The woman will want to rule over the man, but will be thwarted. The man will want to rule over the earth, but will be thwarted. So there's, there's similarity here between the punishments. But the question you could ask is, why is this punishment related to the ground? Cursed is the ground because of you. Well, it's interesting that in this punishment, five times the, the word for eat shows up. So the word eat is emphasized. Why did they eat? Was it just because they needed nourishment? No, because they had all the fruit of the trees of all that are around. Why did they eat? They ate because they thought they would find greater life apart from God, right? that they would find power, that they, would find, they, they wouldn't need God if they, would, if they would eat from that fruit of that tree. And what they're actually going to see is they absolutely need God. And every time you eat, it's going to be painful, in a sense. The ground is not going to be gracious to you. The ground's going to make it difficult to get food. So God's punishment, what's happening here is that humanity is going to see that they need to eat in order to stay alive. But even with all of our work to get food, the earth isn't going to cooperate. And while humanity might want to rule over the earth to make, to make the earth give us what we want, we're going to still die. To dust, Adam will return. And that's not just the case for Adam, right? That's the case for everybody after Adam. We work and we toil to try to get the earth to give us what we want, whether it's food or whether it's materials, so that we can make things in order to make money to be able to have food. And we try to conquer over this earth by having it give us food. And in the end, the earth is going to eat us we lose. You see that? We do all of that and the earth is going to win. It's going to swallow us up. Now I think there's something really important for us to notice here in this, in this punishment. Sometimes people will look at the punishment to Adam and they'll say, oh, work is a part of the curse. <laughs> That's why I hate work. No. No. No, work is not a part of the curse, right? Because in the earlier chapter, they were supposed to work and tend the garden. Work is not a part of the curse. It is the sweat of the face 
that's a part of the curse, which is figurative type of terminology that's talking about the difficulty and the pain that has now come as a part of work, the, the, the feeling of vanity that exists now. Am I really accomplishing anything that matters if we're going to die anyway? What's the point of all of this? That's the, the sweat of the face with work. The work doesn't, doesn't breed life. I'm just going to die. This, by the way, should confront us. I think that this ought to be a loving confrontation to us from God. Just like Adam sought to find life in that food apart from God, now he's showing us, and you're going to work for food, and you're going to find that that's vanity and that's not life. I want to emphasize and press a point here because I think part of this punishment is, is to confront us with how we view our labor, how we view our work. I think, I don't, I don't think we're unique, but I think there are unique ways in which our society that has so much wealth, um, we, t we take unique ways to try to mask the effects of the fall when it comes to work. And I think that we as human beings often want to find our identity, hope, life, meaning, purpose in our work. Just pause to think about this with me. It, it, what's one of the first questions you ask someone that you first meet? What do you do? What's your name and what do you do? And then the response is, I am a this. Um, now, I'm not saying that's always problematic. I understand the phrasing. Somebody can say, what do you do, Timothy? Oh, I'm a pastor, right? But we have to be careful. Are we, are we getting our identity and meaning from this? Is this what fuels our life? I, I, I've heard of, of even statistics that talk about men who lose, who lose their jobs. They get fired. And it's as though their life has been taken away from them. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, has your life been taken away from you if your job, if you've been fired? No, your life has not been taken away from you. And yet, I think there are many people that when they, that, that they want to ignore that this fallen world exists and they become workaholics just to become faithful and good workers with good work ethics, but they're blinding themselves to the vanity of this. You're taking way too much identity in this. Now, there's the, there's the flip side on the other end where some people recognize this is all vain. What's the point? I don't like work. I, I remember when I used to work at Wendy's and I would tell my parents, I don't like this. It's like, well, too bad, keep going. You know? Why? Why? Now, we live in a society that often, often is like, do what makes you feel happy. Make sure that your job is the happiest thing ever and that it just fills your tank with joy. Do you realize that you will never, no matter what job you have, you will never be fully satisfied with everything that you do in that job? Do you know that? And yet I think many people recognize this world is fallen, but we're trying to ignore the fallenness of this world and say, well, no, I know that the perfect job exists. Instead of saying, no, this world is fallen. I need God, not the job, to give me meaning. I need God, not the job, to ignite my passions for his glory. 
so that I can glorify him in whatever I do. This is actually what Ecclesiastes goes on to say. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? This all sounds so encouraging, right? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is vanity. Have you ever had a hard day's work, and then you can't sleep at night? What's the deal with that body? Come on. And, and he's saying, this is what happens. We live in this world. And then he says this, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. And you say, well, why would I eat and drink and find enjoyment in my toil? Oh, it's not up there. The rest of the verse is, this also I saw is from the hand of God for and this is the important part. This is Ecclesiastes 2.25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? If we live life apart from God, we just, you can't. You can't have enjoyment. Even if the job is a perfect job, you can't. You, you, you really can't know fulfillment if you don't know God. So where do you look to? Or maybe I can ask it this way. Does the vanity of labor lead you to the Lord God or to seeking more meaning in your work? Can I just let that sink in? Read that. If you turn to the Lord in the pains and vanity, you found life. But to turn back to work or even something else in this world is continued death. So we see even in this punishment that God gives, the covenant-keeping God compels us to see our need for him as he meets out this judgment. We need him. Now we move on and we also see God's mercy to Adam and Eve. Look at verses 20 through 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now these words actually might seem to be out of place, but I think they're beautifully in place because they create a, a, a beautiful contrast with what's going on. You might remember the illustration I gave about a month ago where if you go into a jewelry store and you ask to see a piece of jewelry, they take out something dark and put that jewelry on top of that to create the contrast so you can see the beauty of this diamond or stone or ring or whatever it is that you're looking at. That's what's going on here. There is a contrast here. God has just meted out these judgments and punishments as a result of, of sin. There's, there's chaos. Chaos has entered the world because sin has entered. But we should be remembering Genesis 1-2. Remember Genesis 1-2? The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the waters. And did that keep God from being able to create something beautiful? What? No, not at all. It didn't, it didn't hinder God. Darkness, void. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there was life that came through, and there was multiplication, and things were teeming on this earth. So do you think when Adam and Eve sinned, God then said, oh, no! I, I worked really hard on this, guys. I, there's no way I can fix this. 
You think God thought that? No, absolutely not. Because he's already shown himself to be the God who brings order from chaos. Chaos has entered, real chaos has entered because of sin. And God is over this. And we know God is over this because we see mercy triumphing in these two verses. So how do we see mercy triumphing in these two verses? Well, even as I look at these two verses, I'm reminded of Ephesians 2.8 that says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. Now the reason why I bring that verse up right now is because I look at verse 20 and Adam, what, what does he do? He names his wife what? Eve. He names his wife Eve. Up to this point, her name is woman, right? He, she's not referred to as Eve until this point in time after the punishments. She's referred to as Eve, which means mother of all living. What? That, that sounds ridiculous. She should be called the mother of death, right? Because it was through her that she, she listened to the serpent. She took the fruit. She handed it to her husband. She should be the mother of death. Do you see that? Is, is Adam not living in reality here? No, he, he, he's living in reality. He actually, I think, believed God's words that God spoke to the serpent in verse 15. In verse 15, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Adam has heard there's going to be someone who comes through woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Something I should have done that I didn't do. And God, in his mercy, is going to send someone to crush the head. And he's going to come through woman. This seed of the woman is going to reverse the curse and so as a result, Adam names her mother of all living, which is, again, quite a phenomenal statement because don't you remember what Adam did before when God showed up in the garden? And God said, how do you know that you're naked? And what's Adam's response to God? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's the woman. It's the woman that you gave me. It's her fault, and I took, and then I ate. He's blame-shifting there, but here, here Adam doesn't say, well, I'm going to get you back. You're the mother of death. That's not what he does. He hears the mercy of God, and I believe his heart is melted, and he says, call her Eve. Don't let her be known for her traitorous actions. Let her be known by the mercy of God. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. May she be known as one who has received mercy. Isn't that beautiful? That she would be known as one who God is working through. That's grace. And mercy doesn't stop here. You go on and see what happens in verse 21. The Lord God, the covenant-keeping God, made garments of skins for Adam and Eve to wear. Now remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, they made their own garments, right, with, with the fig leaves. And as Moses is writing here, it's indicating that they made those garments because they were naked and shamed. They felt condemnation. 
And so they're trying to cover up somehow this, this condemnation. And that speaks to us in our, in, in our day as well. We often try to mask and hide the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that we feel due, doing all sorts of things, not turning to the Lord, but turning to our own ways and our own means to do this. But after God states his punishments to Adam and Eve, what does he do? He clothes them with skins, which indicates that a animal or multiple animals had to die for this. This is not something that that Adam would have even thought to do. But God takes the lives of these animals and gives them skins. And I think that that signifies those new clothes signify something extremely important because who, who are the original readers again? The Israelites. And they have been given laws about a sacrificial system. And in that sacrificial system, in those laws, they're told that something has to die if there's sin. And death, death is able to bring atonement for your sins, which actually those animal sacrifices were pointing forward to that serpent crusher whose heel was going to be bruised. That ultimately the animals can't bring forgiveness, but God is showing them death has to take place for you to be cleansed. And then, then in the Israelite system, there was even a law about the, the, the skins of the animal. Give those to the priests, right? I think what this is signifying is that God has forgiven Adam and Eve and that their clothing is not clothings of their man-made efforts to try to justify themselves and remove themselves of shame, but this is God clothing them and saying, you're righteous, you're forgiven. And you say, I think you're reading too much into that. Maybe, maybe I am. I don't think I am. I want to take you actually to another passage of scripture, the prophecies of Zechariah. And Zechariah tells of a situation, he has this vision where Joshua, the high priest, is in the presence of God. And he says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with, say those two words with me, filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The clothing is signifying the iniquity being taken away. And, and, and listen, Satan's accusations would have been true, right? because he was, he was filthy. And yet God says, silence. The angel of the Lord, who I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus, says, give him pure clothes. And, and the angel of the Lord is the one that says, I, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you, clothe you with pure vestments. Isn't that isn't this just an expansion of, of, of what happened with Adam and Eve? It's telling us more of the meaning. God clothed Adam and Eve. Now that should be powerful to us because I want you to imagine, and maybe you have imagined this before, what, what was life like for Adam and Eve after they sinned? 
Have you ever wondered that? What was the difference between perfection and then the fall? Anybody ever wonder that before? But I want you to think a little bit more specifically. Any woman who died in labor, any child who died in pregnancy, any sickness, any pain, any sniffle, Adam and Eve could say, it's because of us. It's because of us. Have you ever felt, felt deep feelings of condemnation before when you've thought about certain sins in your life? I mean, if you're a believer in Christ, I think you, you had to have. And there might even still be certain things in your past where you're like, ooh, I don't even want to think about it because you get all of these emotions and feelings coming up inside of you that are, that are scary. Any of you have felt that before? Yeah? How much more Adam and Eve? They're children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. And yet, and yet, God says, I've clothed you. Your your meaning, your value, your hope is in my righteousness. You no longer, you no longer should live in condemnation. Wow. And that should be the reality for us as God's children as well. God didn't keep Adam and Eve in fig leaves. And listen, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God doesn't keep you in your fig leaves either. He clothes you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that even when we get into the New Testament scriptures, we find commands saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that we're in Christ, that we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that as Romans 6 through 8 teaches, if we've trust in Jesus, we're no longer a slave, but we're a son and a daughter. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're clothed with new clothing. That should affect how we live. That doesn't mean we deny what we've done in the past, but now God has set us free from the condemnation of those things. And we can weep and sorrow over sin and also rejoice that our God is so merciful and his mercy triumphs over judgment. God, the covenant-keeping God, compels us to see our need for him by giving mercy to Adam and Eve. Do you, do you know that mercy? Have you experienced that mercy? Are you living in that mercy? You need him. And finally, God's judgment and mercy to humanity. Look at verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. So our triune God, he is speaking to himself, stating that Adam and Eve now know good and evil. And humanity was never to know the difference between good and evil, because that for us is just chaos and confusion. So chaos and confusion have entered our lives and into this world, and then God keeps humanity from the tree of life. And some people might say, well, that's, that's mean. God should open up the way to the tree of life because we need life. Do we need life? 
Yes? Yes? But I, I find it so interesting here in the Hebrew that it doesn't finish the sentence. Did you notice that? Like when Colby was reading and when I just read right now, the end of verse, uh, the end of verse 22, my translation just has a line. Like the sentence doesn't end. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What? Tell me, what? I think we can pick up on what that means. Hopelessness. Why? Because if we are now bound in our sinfulness and then we eat from the tree of life, what does that mean for us? We're bound in sin forever like Satan. There will never be rescue for human beings. So God is being merciful here by protecting human beings from themselves because we have, we have a stubbornness to say, well, wait, I think I'm right and God's wrong. So God puts the cherubim and flaming swords in front of the entrance of the garden. They can't, humans can't touch it. God leaves the Garden of Eden, it seems, for a time. I don't know how long it's there and the tree of life there for a time to speak to human beings. But kicking people out of the garden was the best thing, one of the best things to keep us from destroying ourselves. Now we're told here, that the garden faced east. And I want you to pick up on that because east is meaningful in the scriptures. Some of you already know this. I've mentioned this before, different times. But from this point on in the book of Genesis, people head east. They're away from the presence of the Lord. And it's not until you get to Exodus when the tabernacle is being built that then God says, put the tabernacle up. And by the way, the tabernacle, the interior, is to mimic pictures of Eden. Cherubim, tree of life that has uh, fire on it, the lampstand, the presence of God. And, and wouldn't you know that the tabernacle faces east? Now, they still have protectors. Priests are to protect the entrance of the tabernacle, but it's still intriguing. Some people can enter. Some people can enter into the presence of God. These priests can on our behalf, which points forward, points forward to the serpent crusher who's going to one day, because of his death, tear the temple veil in two and allow anyone to come into the presence of God, welcoming whoever comes in repentance and faith into God's very presence. I want you to see when we look at this text, Jesus fulfills all of this, all of it. I, I have it written here, the serpent crusher and the seed of the woman. Jesus is the one who took death and gives life. Instead of taking, trying to take life, what Adam tries to do, Jesus took death and he gives life by giving us his righteousness as our covering and reverses the curse of work and is victorious over the, de uh, over the dust. That's phenomenal. Jesus took the death you and I deserve to die, the punishment that we deserve to die, the wrath of God, Jesus took it on himself in the place of sinners. So as he took that on himself, then he gives his righteousness as our covering and reverses the curse. How does he reverse the curse? Because when Jesus went into the ground, the ground couldn't keep him. 
Like the whale with Jonah spit out Jonah, the ground spit out Christ because it could not hold Jesus. Jesus is the only man, the only one, a man of dust who conquered the dust because he's God in the flesh, right? He is the new Adam. And then he reverses the curse of work and is victorious over that. He reverses the curse of work. The New Testament then goes on and says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 15, in talking about the resurrection, it says, now your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If you're depending on the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever you do can matter for eternity, whether you feel like it does or not. That's not the point. It matters for eternity. Yeah, this world is vain, but Christ is conquered, and it's going to matter 10,000 years from now. Because God matters for all eternity. His glory matters. And he'll never silence his glory. And his children living for his glory. Jesus wins. Praise God. The covenant-keeping God compels us to see our need for him by giving mercy through judgment to Adam, Eve, and humanity. So questions for you. Do you see his judgment? Will you trust him for his mercy? We're needy for him. Will you continue to turn to this world for identity, hope, meaning, and purpose? Or will you be filled by God through Jesus? Where will you go? You can't have both. We're going to continue on with our service. We're going to sing a song in response. And we'll have a couple of other things as we close. But at the end of the service, when, after the benediction, I just want to invite you, if, if you have questions about Christianity, or if you're burdened by certain things, or if you feel stuck in sin, there's going to be people up here ready and willing to talk with you, pray for you, uh, and care for your soul. So please take advantage of that. Um, but let me pray for us as we continue. Lord, worthy are you. Hallowed be your name. God, I pray that you would convince us of our need for you and also convict us of sin. Convince us that righteousness and living for you is so much better. Because in living that way, we are communing with you. I pray, that, I pray that that would be the reality, that we commune with you and live for your glory. Help us, Father. Grace us, Lord. And may we revel in the reality, those of us who know Jesus, may we revel in the reality that Jesus' robes of righteousness are ours. And it's in his name we pray. Stand with me and hear these words as we conclude our time together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith 
for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen.